Hello, and welcome to the Vote Her podcast, because when you vote, great things can happen. Hi, I'm Mara Davis. I'm a podcaster and now a podcast writer contributor to Pace Magazine. Wow, that is crazy. I know. And I host a podcast too with a state senator. And I'm Jen Jordan, and I am a state senator, and I am co hosting this podcast as well. It's great to see you. Oh, it's good to see you. It really is. It's good to be here in person. I just got back from Boca Raton seeing my mother. And the talk there is vaccination. It's like vaccination nation there. So all the ladies, all the vaccinated ladies, I got to come up with a song because they're living their best life, Jen. Man, I would be too. Can you imagine you've been in Florida where they've had some of the worst COVID-19 numbers and then you're able to get vaccinated? Yeah, I would be loving it right now. Well, it's my mom's joke that getting a vaccine is like getting the Hamilton tickets. Did you get your shot? Did you get your shot? Did you get your shot? Did you get your... That's all they talk about is the vaccine. So while we're on the topic of vaccines, what is the latest with vaccines in Georgia? Because there has been all kinds of mixed messages with the governor saying there's not enough. Sorry, teachers, got to wait your turn. But now I want to be the vaccine governor. So what is the latest in fill us in? Yeah, it's it's kind of weird. And this whole vaccine governor thing is kind of taking me aback a little bit because obviously there isn't enough and there have been major problems in terms of the administration of the program. The good news is, is that the Biden administration just announced that they have bought think 200 million more doses, and they think that everybody can get vaccinated by the end of the summer. So one way or the other, he'll be the vaccination governor, because hopefully we'll all have access to it at some point in time, and hopefully sooner rather than later. What is the deal with his dust up with the Biden administration and pulling back on Medicaid programs? So let's kind of walk it back a little bit. For those of you who may not have been paying attention to kind of the whole Medicaid thing, the governor announced last year or the year before last that he was going to apply for waivers from the Medicaid expansion program. And basically what he wanted to do is almost like a scaled down version, but also have a work requirement as part of it, um, which has been held not to be consistent, actually, with the tenants of Medicaid in terms of helping folks that are going through a hard time have okay. access to health care, right? Mm-hmm. Also, the administration of a work requirement is incredibly expensive. Sure. Um, we've seen hundreds of millions of dollars go just to the administration. So that's kind of, they got a waiver to have a work requirement and actually not cover that many people. And so he was covering less. It was costing more. Oh, and you better get to work and report it back to us, right? Biden administration comes in. This waiver has been approved. And all of a sudden, on the HHS website the other day, we see that now it's gone back to pending. And I think basically what the Biden administration said to Kemp is this work requirement really is not in line with the tenants of the Medicaid program. And, you know, we're not so sure that we're going to let you do that. That's interesting. Well, I'm sure that was not the news he wanted to hear, especially now that he's the vaccine governor, which is amazing to me, especially as a governor who has not been very forceful over any mask mandate, has sued 
mayors <laughs> for masks and now wants to be a, a poster boy for health. Right. I mean, we don't want to expand Medicaid. We don't want to offer, you know, health care to people. We don't even want to follow, you know, health guidelines when it comes to the virus. But by God, we're going to be the vaccine governor. Well, and I, I was really struck. We were both talking about this, about this cheer sport, cheerleading event that came to the Georgia War Congress Center. And even though they claimed that they were doing it safely, where they brought 40,000 people in to this event, which is really eerie that just weeks ago, that was a makeshift hospital. And now you've got the cheerleaders running around. And I saw a couple of pictures from that, Jen, of like kind of outraged parents of how it wasn't safe, how they were promised safety guidelines and it didn't really go that way. Yeah, it, it looked like that maybe during the competition, like for when the, the girls were competing, that that didn't have a crowd in it. But the issue is, is all the people that come with these <laughs> with these cheerleaders, kind of the holding area where you have all of these folks milling around kind of doing their own thing. And the pictures we saw showed that not a lot of folks were wearing masks. And I think that's a tough, obviously, everything's tough because you you recognize all the vendors that lose money, the restaurants that lose money, the venue itself that loses money, but where do you draw a line? And um, some people were upset with the governor uh, not stepping in on that. Yeah, but vaccines, Mara. But, back, uh, <laughs> but vaccines. <laughs> okay. Well, let's hope some of the teachers can get them. I know that's been prioritized a little bit more. I don't think so. Look, the thing that irritated me about the teacher so much is that he actually moved up people over the teachers that had weren't a priority or weren't as high of a priority according to the CDC recommendations. And then the whole attack on teachers and superintendents and administrators saying, oh, teachers are just trying to cut the line, when in fact, that's not true. They just kind of wanted the governor to follow the CDC recommendations, but he didn't, and he put other people in front of them. And so that's what we're dealing with now. Okay. How are her things going at the Capitol lately? How have you been there after, you know, people refusing to be tested? I feel like it was just that one guy uh, who did it. But does it seem like people are respecting people's guidelines there since you've been there in session? It has. And actually, we've been two weeks solid now with no positive tests coming out of the Senate, meaning all of the electeds, but all of the staff too, in terms of the administrative staff for the Senate. So that's a lot of people. And I think it is because of this surveillance testing we're getting. It's the same kind of testing that Georgia Tech has used and has been able to successfully keep, you know, their campus open. And so it's incredible that if we just invest in that and we listen to people who know what they're doing in terms of the science, that we can mitigate the risk. I feel pretty good about the future. I am hopeful. A lot of people have said, I'm like... Well, you've a- been down in Boca, of course. <laughs> exactly. You've seen the future, baby. I, I, I definitely have. But I feel like the numbers are going down, although people are saying, oh, the numbers are going down, but because they're so incredibly high and they're higher than they've ever been. So this is a, you know... We should still obviously follow the rules. But I feel like with this level of vaccines that are coming, I do feel some hope. Look, I've 
think I've repeated this a dozen times, but it for the first time, it's like you can see the light at the end of the tunnel and it's not a train coming, right? I mean, that's the way it's felt for like a year. It's like, man, are we ever going to get out of this? And now it really does feel like we're at least going to be able to get back to some semblance of normal, understanding that this virus is probably going to always be with us in some form. But I think we're all ready for that. Yeah, I feel that. Okay, so we've also gotten behind a more of a a big storm, and that was the impeachment hearings, which, you know, we all watched. We all knew how that was going to result. And I I mean, I, I wasn't expecting a different outcome, were you? No, but it's always disappointing. It's kind of the same thing when I've tried cases in front of a jury that I knew wasn't feeling <laughs> me. But you do your best job and and you think, all right, maybe I got them, right? Yeah, 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 maybe yeah, yeah, I yeah. got them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they come back and it's like, no, no not at all. <laughs> so it was the same kind of thing. It was like, oh, but the, they did such a good job. And, and, you know, the messaging was so clear and all of this kind of stuff. It's like, maybe, maybe... And then it's like, yeah, yeah. I feel that it needed to happen and it was right that it happens because we have it on record. And I think it was important for the American public to see those videos. And I don't think we should stop showing them. I think they should have a January 6th commission. I think it's important to remember the people who parroted the big lie. I really do. I think it needs to be on the record. But there were some incredible speeches from Representative Plaskett, of course, Raskin. So many people would just absolutely rocked my world. But the way I felt at the end of it was, okay, well, we knew the result was going to be this. But now we've got these other cases. So we've got the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, and we've got uh, New York, Tisha James, Attorney General. And there seems to be other lawsuits swirling around the Trump administration. How does that kind of connect here in Georgia? Well, let's go back to kind of the statements that were made after the impeachment vote. And I think McConnell's was incredibly important, where he basically said, well, this shouldn't be over because really there should be consequences in terms of of the criminal investigations and cases. So let's listen to that for a second. Justice Story specifically reminded that while former officials were not eligible for impeachment or conviction, they were, and this is extremely important, still liable to be tried and punished in the ordinary tribunals of justice. Put another way, in the language of today, President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office as an ordinary citizen, unless the statute of limitations is run, still liable for everything he did while he's in office. Didn't get away with anything yet. Yeah, so in terms of Georgia, it's fascinating because we do have District Attorney Fonnie Willis, who was just elected. She sent out letters telling people to preserve evidence, preserve emails, letters, whatever, documents. And she sent it to... uh, the lieutenant governor, the governor, the secretary of state, and the attorney general. But she's also kind of intimated that she was going to go further and specifically was going to look at some of the state Senate hearings that Rudy Giuliani was involved in and exposed me to COVID at. (laughs) And where uh, Mr. Giuliani told you what a great job uh, you and Senator Parent did. 
Right. <laughs> so good that we got many death threats. It was amazing. Got a five-star review. So is that case going anywhere? Should we feel like... Because I tortured myself, Jen, to listen to the entire phone call between Raffensperger and Trump and the whole team. And it it was just the most damning thing. I feel like the man could have been impeached just on that alone. But we're all desensitized because so many things have been happening over the years and there have been zero consequences except the loss of an election and the Congress and the Senate. So are there consequences now? So I'm not sure. I have to tell you that we know, obviously, we've heard the call. I mean, thankfully, there was a recording. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,000. 780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Because, of course, my guess is that the former president would not exactly accept kind of uh, kind of the characterization that the Secretary of State and Gabriel Sterling have given to the call. So, but we've got them on tape. The question is, though, is that what else is there? I mean, if this is what we know, As members of the public, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there could be a lot of there there. The question is what D.A. Willis's investigation is going to uncover. Do you know her? I have met her and, you know, she ran a great race against Paul Howard, who needed to go. And look, I always love when women run and and win, and especially when they're willing to, you know, kind of step up and and give it to the man. Okay. Well, you've said it all. Uh, We'll have to keep our our eye on that because that's certainly a case we want to keep going. I mean, in a way, it's like I want a lot of this Trump news to go away. But at the same time, I, I just I have so many questions on how his brand and the party goes on from there as far as the GOP goes, and especially the GOP in Georgia, you know, Greg Bluestein laid out, or one of them at the AGC laid out all of the GOP members who, again, parroted the big lie and few faced any consequences at all. No, I I mean, that's what's really, really interesting here is that we have so many state electeds that really pushed that narrative that Trump was putting out there. And now we even have all these bills being filed by them that all find kind of their genesis or their beginning in one of the threads from the lie, right? That dead people were voting. So then there's this bill that says local boards of elections have to call funeral homes and check to see who died and take them off the voting rolls. I mean, all of it is is basically just a nod to some crazy conspiracy theory. And um, and that's incredibly troubling. It really, really is, because in my view, and I, I'm excited to ask our guest about this, I feel like a lot of this foolery ends up hurting a lot of people in the Republican Party, especially when it comes to newly vaccinated seniors. If you live in a rural area and it's going to be harder for you to do what you need to do, that could be a problem for you. I think there's going to be a lot of soul searching going on in the Republican Party. And we've got an election, another election coming up, a big one, right, where all the constitutional officers are going to be up. Senator Warnock will be up for re-election. Golly, 
he's got to be tired, right? You just come off basically campaigning for a year and then you've got to go right back into a reelect. They're going to have to have somebody kind of step up and run for that. And then, of course, there's been all this talk of, of primaries with respect to somebody challenging the governor and Raffensperger and on and on. And so they're going to have to figure out really quickly where they're going to go in this state because, uh, you know, November of 2022 isn't isn't very far away. It's right around the corner. I mean, we all know you're not running for governor, sadly. That is true. <laughs> Because for a minute, I thought if you w- did run for governor, I'd be like, oh, my God, it'd be so awesome. I could go to like the governor's mansion Christmas party. Like, uh, of course, I made it about me. Like, what are all the things I could do? If- right. You're kind of jumping ahead of a, like a full election, like actually being elected. <laughs> I, I totally was. I just saw myself in it. Just like I'm here to see. <laughs> By the way, talking about the governor's mansion, it is not very attractive. It's not. Like, I almost want an HGTV special, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, where they come in and they basically kind of completely redo it and so it has curb appeal. I mean, it is not attractive. And it is on a beautiful street in Atlanta in the best Senate district in the world, Senate <laughs> District 6. But come on. You're not wrong. And... I think that some changes need to be made. I think that it does need better curb appeal. I agree. I well, agree. if I'm ever governor, Mara, I, I get invited to the Christmas party and we're going to get a new outdoor landscaping team. Well, outdoor landscaping's fine, but maybe a coat of paint, okay. something. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just not the most attractive house. Well, our guest is longtime conservative pundit, one-time candidate, politico, culture guru, wife, mother, grandmother, grad student, and radio broadcaster. You can hear her on WDUN in Gainesville. And she's worked with many, many candidates giving her advice and how she can connect people. Please welcome the great Martha Zoller. Hi, Martha. Hi there. Great to be here. Well, it's funny how I met Martha. Martha being um, working very closely with a, a GOP candidates. And we actually connected on Twitter via a Hi Kelly, Kelly Leffler tweet. That's how we met, you know. That's right. I know. <laughs> I mean, I knew of you for years from your, you know, your radio career. And you probably knew of me for the different things that I did. But that was how we actually directly connected. So it's amazing. I slipped into your DMs. (laughs) (laughs) So how's everything going? You're a GOP strategist. What are things look like to you right now? Look, and I've said it in a number of venues. I mean, right now, the Georgia GOP is like a Jenga game where you've pulled the wrong block out and there's a lot going on now. We are still a Republican state, though. If you look at the number of people that didn't vote on January 5th compared to November 3rd, it was around 750,000 Republicans did not vote that voted on November 3rd. And on the Democrat side, only about 150,000 did not turn out. And this, according to the Washington Post, did not turn out on January 5th versus November 3rd. So there are still enough Republicans out there to win races. 
But you now have a group of Republicans that think they're more powerful by not participating. And I'm concerned about that. And I'm working right now with a lot of GOP women uh, to kind of talk about how we can, what next steps are. But I wouldn't count any Republican out at this point in time because there's still a lot of, you know, positive things happening in the Republican Party, even though it doesn't feel that way right now. Martha, in terms of, I mean, 750,000 folks, that's a lot of folks not to show up, um, you know, or show back up in the runoff. Was there a particular area of the state where it was more noticeable or was it dispersed kind of evenly kind of throughout the entire state? Well, it was definitely more noticeable in the 9th and 14th congressional districts. And look, it's like the 9th and 14th congressional districts are kind of like the Republicans' Metro Atlanta, okay? If Metro Atlanta doesn't show up for Democrats, Democrats don't win. If the 9th and 14th district doesn't show up for Republicans, Republicans have a hard time winning. There was some issues in South Georgia, and there was this very interesting pocket of African-American farmers that voted for David Perdue and then voted for Raphael Warnock, which was, it was about 20,000 voters that it was an interesting split there. But of course, it was in more of Northeast Georgia, Northwest Georgia. And I think, you know, let's just call it what it is. There was a message out there of get out and vote, but your vote might not count. So it was a very mixed message that was given by the president and others, the former president and others, that um, made it more difficult for people to get out to vote. What do you make of what's going on with the Georgia GOP with Marjorie Taylor Greene getting national coverage? And you said Georgia 14, which is where, you know, the voting didn't uh, show up like it needed to. So where does the Georgia GOP go from here with somebody like that? Well, I, you know, I said this this morning, and this has always been my position, and Jen may disagree with me because she is a, a sitting House member, but I love contested primaries, okay? I think contested primaries keep candidates honest, and they keep them true to what they promised their voters initially they were going to do. So, you know, I'm not going to get into the specifics of Marjorie Taylor Greene, although I have interviewed her on three different times. You know, there have been people that have said you were softball with her talking about my interview style. But that's, I'm not saying I have a softball interview style. I think I have a respectful interview style that whether I'm talking to John Ossoff or I'm talking to Marjorie Taylor Greene, I'm going to be respectful of them. And I would much rather ask them an open-ended question and then let them answer the question and then let the voters decide what they think about the person. So that's kind of my style. And I think it's the reason why I've been able to get lots of different people from all different persuasions to come and be guests on the program. Yeah, I agree with you in terms of primaries. I mean, I think steel sharpens steel, right? Right. If you're just kind of lazy and go into a general, you haven't really been out there running. And, um, and I think it helps you kind of hone your message too. I think the problem is, you know, with a lot of these districts, the election is the primary, right? So, you know, the general isn't really a competitive thing. So it's almost kind of flip-flopped. And I know that is the case with respect to um, Congresswoman Green's district. So it'll be interesting if she gets primary this time as a sitting incumbent. 
I think there's about six to eight districts, Democrat and Republican in Georgia, that pretty much that's the case. You know, whoever runs and wins in the primary is the person who ultimately wins. And by a long shot, we're not talking about, you know, 52-48. We're talking about, you know, 65-35. Right. Kind of like Congressional 5, right? John Lewis's former district. Four is like that also. Eight. 14, you know, nine, and there's, you know, two is like that also. Everybody thinks people are going to beat Sanford Bishop, but it never happens. And it's really because Sanford actually works with whoever's in power. Sanford Bishop worked very closely with David Perdue when President Obama was president to be able to get agriculture things through. He also is Uh, You know, he worked with David Perdue when Donald Trump was president. They helped each other with the things that they could work together on. But, you know, Jen, that's not a good story, right? Nobody ever hears that story because it's not a good story to say that a Democratic congressman worked with a Republican senator to get things done. That's not that doesn't get clicks. Well, it should. I mean, look, at at the end of the day. That's what's interesting to me is that, you know, politics is almost like this kind of pop culture thing now, as opposed to understanding that what we're doing is we are electing people who are then supposed to work for you, do constituent services, work cooperatively with people in power, out of power, whatever it is, across the aisle on the same, in the same party. And you're right, we're not we, we've kind of lost kind of sight of actually what's supposed to happen when somebody gets elected. Well, I was talking this morning, somebody asked me a question about Governor Kemp and whether I thought that he was done, you know, and and I said, look, don't count Brian Kemp out. First of all, Brian Kemp made some difficult decisions, whether you liked him or not, that hurt him politically because he thought it was the right thing to do. You might have disagreed with the decision. You might not have liked the decision. But there's no discounting the fact he's made several decisions that he thought were the best things for Georgia, but probably hurt him politically. And I think ultimately that's what we really want from elected officials. Not that we want to see that they don't just do what the party wants them to do, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. So I wouldn't count Brian Kemp out because people are going to see as we get out of this pandemic and our economy in Georgia is better than most, that he's going to be a real contender in the 2022 race and he's not washed up. You know, I would not count Brian Kemp out. Okay, so it was announced um, that there's a a campaign uh, against Stacey Abrams, Stop Stacey. And do you think that's an effective messaging? You know, I don't know enough about that to comment on that particular issue. But what I will say is that, look, I'm a conservative Republican because I think our ideas are best. I think we've done a lousy job in the last few years communicating those ideas. Part of it you can blame on social media because people don't want anything unless it's it's controversial. Part of it you can blame on President Trump. Part of it you can blame on, on lots of other things as far as messaging is concerned. But if I didn't believe we had the best messaging, I wouldn't still be here. So, or we had the best ideas. We just need to work on the messaging. So I, I don't know about the Stop Stacy movement. It doesn't surprise me, but I think that she is going to be the number one contender on the Democrat side. And I doubt anybody's going to primary her, you know, regardless of our comment, Jen, earlier that primaries are good for people. <laughs> I think that Stacey will probably have a clear shot without a primary. In terms of, for example, uh, Senator Warnock, that race, I mean, we're less than two years out, right? And he's going to have to right. 
come in hot for a reelection. But with respect to um, Republicans in Georgia, what is the type of candidate that is going to run in that race? I mean, I've heard Mitch McConnell talk about that all he cares about is electability. But I guess that's a really big question. Like, who is electable in a Republican primary for U.S. Senate in Georgia in 22? Well, I think, first of all, I want to say to Reverend Warnock, who I have not interviewed yet, I'm still working with his people on that. He had the best ads of anybody. And he was actually helped by the fact that the Republicans were duking it out between Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins. Totally. Because he was able to be above the fray the whole time and basically do all positive ads. He did some negative ones at the end, you know, but he was basically doing mostly positive ads. What people remember about his advertising are the positive ads. And so he, you know, hats off to him for that because they were really, really good ads and they were memorable. But I think that, you know, what's happening within the Republican Party is there's some discussion about uh, Doug Collins running again. There is some discussion about Kelly Leffler taking another shot at it. I think they're both sort of trying to see what the other one's going to do, although I haven't had a conversation with either one of them directly about this. But I think that there also are going to be those candidates that you might not have um, heard about. I mean, there's some talk about Jeff Duncan getting into that that particular race. Uh, but I don't know, you know, I don't know if that's going to be the case or not. So I think there will be a robust primary on the Republican side. And it is going to be somebody that's going to be able to carry the 9th and the 14th district, but also then being able to move you know, move, I don't even want to say to the center, I call it center right. I like to use the baseball analogy that if in a normal world, it is a shorter distance from right field to center field than it is from left field to center field, if you're lining up in the outfield that way. And uh, we have not been in a normal world. So that's my, that's my guess on that. You gave a sports analogy. That's what I was like. I did. Right, right. (laughs) You lost us. (laughs) Martha, I'm curious to know what you think about the buzz about Laura Trump running for Senate in North Carolina. You know, there was a quote from somebody. My position about the whole Trump, you know, 2024 thing has been, I don't think that former President Trump is going to run for reelection. I think he is going to set up however many of his children, you know, to run in different places around the country, that he has this vision of a dynasty or something like that. I think that he's going to insert himself in the 2022. He has got a unrealistic hatred of Governor Kemp for, you know, a couple of reasons. And I don't see him running in 2024 for president again, although he's going to dangle that carrot out there for as long as he can. I think he's going to be setting up either Laura Trump or Don Jr. running or both at some point in time. But I'm curious for you, like, look, I I think people can understand why Trump won because he's got charisma and he's he's authentic as is Obama was authentic. But as someone like Laura Trump, is she authentic? The quote was, you know, don't take this the wrong way, but in the cult of Trump, you know, they're there for their cult leader. But are they there for the underlings, like someone like her. I just don't buy that she's connectable to an average person in North Carolina. I don't know. I could be wrong. I could be right. Actually, I think Eric and Laura Trump were the most relatable of the family group as far as a couple went and as far as the interviews they did and the things they they were very likable, I thought. 
And it's not that I don't like the other ones. I don't know them. I met President Trump twice in my career, but it was before he was running for president. And, you know, I, and I've told you this story before, Mara. The, the interesting thing is, is that former President Trump and President Biden are very similar in the kinds of personalities that they have. Now, now uh, President Biden is much more low-key now than he used to be. But when I met them both in 08 and 12, they were both those kind of men that you knew when they walked in the room. They had a big presence. And, you know, not to be snarky at all is they used to be really good looking. And so they had this sort of presence. I mean, they had this sort of presence around women um, that that was similar. I know, sorry. I anyway. know, but I, I feel, I, I, that's exactly... Uh, we're on the same page here. Uh, that's what I mean. I just don't know that someone like Laura Trump or Ivanka Trump ha- have that same connectability to people. Uh, and w- and with politics, that is such a big piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I agree with you. But I guess if I was going to bet on anybody being successful politically, I would bet on those two. Okay. So I think the bigger issue is in terms of Trump's political future, whatever that is, is I think the bigger question is whether or not he is going to try to put his thumb on the scale in Georgia in 22. Oh, I think there's no doubt about that, Jen. Oh, I no. think we're preparing for that. <laughs> that's, um, that's tough. <laughs> yeah, I think that he will, you know, mainly because he's... It, well, and I guess it'll depend on where Doug Collins lands. And I think what's interesting about that is that Doug really wasn't a Trump supporter in the first two years of the Trump presidency. He was more of a Paul Ryan guy and Paul Ryan was, Paul Ryan wasn't a never Trumper, but Paul Ryan could have done a lot more as the Speaker of the House to get the Trump agenda through. And I can separate the agenda from the personality, okay? And so there was a lot of roadblocks that even Republicans put up in 17 and 18. And I think it led to them losing the House in 18. And then the Democrats coming in. That's really when you saw Doug Collins go on the offensive to support President Trump fully. Okay. And so it'll depend on where Doug Collins ends up. It'll depend on a number of things. But there is this visceral reaction. I asked today Amy Gardner from the Washington Post, who covers all things Georgia down here. And I said, you know, why this visceral reaction to flip Georgia? It wouldn't have made a difference in the overall scheme of things, if you only flipped Georgia, let's assume they found 12,000 votes, okay? It didn't make a difference. You still lost the election. And it had to do with him just hating. I I mean, the, the woman used the word hating Brian Kemp and the whole thing with, with Kelly Leffler and, and uh, Doug Collins and all of that sort of thing. So it did seem it was more of a vendetta the way the president interacted with Georgia than it did just trying to, you know, find a problem with the election. Martha, you've done such a great job of, of just spelling things out. And I think you're an example as to how, you know, Republicans and Democrats can, can really talk to each other. I think we've lost that, I think, in the previous administration. I think, you know, it's very hard to digest some of the rhetoric. And so do you feel now that there's a better open line of communication? You know, and I think Jen will agree with this in that I think the big difference is, is that in the state house, you guys do work together all the time. I mean, it's, yes, you may have different points of view, but ultimately you got to pass the budget, right? 
and it's got to be balanced. And so eventually, Democrats and Republicans are going to get together. I mean, I've seen so many Democrats and Republicans under the Gold Dome talk about rural broadband and about rural health care. And there's a whole you know, group of issues that you can get on the same page about. And and it's probably like most county commission meetings. You know, you only hear about the votes that are 3-2 or, or, or split votes. But really, there's a whole lot of 5-0 votes that happen at a county commission or on a state level. Part of the reason why I think the federal people never get along is a couple of reasons. One, you know, social media, C-SPAN, everything you do being chronicled, and that if you are seen working with somebody from the other party, then your opponent is going to use that against you in your next election. That's that's the first thing. The second thing is because you don't have a balanced budget, it's always the sky's the limit. You know, you can always try to trump each other <laughs> as far as getting things done <laughs> because there are no limits to what you can do or what you can ask for on the federal level. And so we're seeing it much worse on the federal level than I think you see it on the state or even local level. But I I think Jen probably knows more about that. No, you're right. I think you see a lot more alliances around subject matter. Right. I'm a big proponent of public education. A lot of rural Republicans are proponents of public education, too, in terms of that. So you find folks that you have have things in common in terms of the issues you care about. You're not going to be with them all the time. I mean, you know, that's when you get those really tough votes that are more partisan. Um, But you do. You find the people who are like-minded on certain issues, and you really do try to work through things. Well, I love that we're talking and keeping these lines open, and uh, everybody should check out Martha's show weekdays at 9 a.m. on WDUN and follow Martha Zoller on Twitter. Uh, She always has something interesting to say. She loves British TV. Oh, I do too, Martha. (laughs) I do. Love it. And I'm sure once these Senate races come bubbling up again, we would like your feedback on that. So thanks for giving us some time today. Yeah, I appreciate it so much. And Jen, I don't know if you remember meeting me at that um, uh, 6th District speech kind of thing. It was kind of a forum, sort of a forum, not really. But it was that was the first time I saw you and I thought you did a great job. Oh, that was not, you were very kind that to me. It was the Cochise Club in Vining. So, um, and you were representing Governor Kemp. So I just appreciate you being nice to me. (laughs) (laughs) That's a love fest. (laughs) Yeah, it was a love fest. Well, you know what though? It's better. It's kind of like, um, and it's, when I do an interview, for example, like I had John Ossoff on and they of course did not want to do, they did not want to do my show because I worked for David Perdue for five years. And I get that. But I got Jake Best on the phone with some help from Mara. And and I said, look, Jake, for the first time in a generation, Democrats are running for every seat in Northeast Georgia. Okay, not John should come on not just to help himself, but he should come on to help other Democrats. And and Jake goes, wow, you're good. (laughs) Because really, if I was a total partisan, I wouldn't want to help Democrats at all. No, you're right. You're right. But. But I like the competition and and John came on and at the beginning of the interview, I said, you know, we have more in common than you think. He says, we're both married to doctors. Uh, We both grew up in DeKalb County 
And we both lost a congressional race. And it kind of made him laugh because he's a little stiff sometimes. And then we got into a nice discussion about why he was running and what was important to him. And, you know, I'm still working on that Warnock interview, but I will get it. I'm going to get it. So I'm going to keep working on it. We know you won't give up, Martha. (laughs) Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. All right, Jen. Well, that was, uh, we learned a lot. Martha is great. She and I text a lot about stuff. You know, it's funny because sometimes I see her tweet stuff and I'm like, oh God. I'm sure she thinks the same about us. Oh, 100%. (laughs) I'm sure. But you know what I've learned from Martha? I've learned that like, I've learned to think twice before I tweet something. I'm like, do I really mean that? And that's good. And I love the idea of talking to her because I've I've actually really learned a lot. I may not agree with her on everything, but I've learned a lot from her. Look, I think she's she's really going to have a lot of interesting opinions. That's my guess. <laughs> Once some of these primary fields start to kind of start to develop in terms of the U.S. Senate races. And even if, if anybody's going to primary, for example, Governor Kemp or the Secretary of State or whatever, that's going to be really fascinating. Well, the one thing she said, and I didn't want to get in there, and she's listening right now. I'm sure she'll text me later about it. But the one thing that she said that Leffler was going to run again. Yeah, that's the word on the street that people are throwing out. But I cannot (laughs) imagine. (laughs) I I just... You just blow through $100 million of your own money and you get your fanny handed to you and you're going to come back for more? But again, that sort of goes back to what we were talking about, the likability factor. Like, and I've always said this, Doug Collins is authentic. He has a likability factor to him. I don't like his policies or anything, but I bet if I sat down and had a beer with him, I'd have a great time with him. Well, maybe. (laughs) He he fascinates me. You... But you know, I, I have a thing for... For, for Republicans. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. I do. I do. I like folksy people. And he's folksy. I, I like it. All right. couple things we wanted to wrap up the show with. The one thing that was the funniest thing ever, and I could only think of you, was the lawyer cat video. I know it's a little bit old now, but... Oh, my God. <laughs> that... I sat on my couch that night, and I played it over... <laughs> And over and over, and I cackled every single time. Mr. Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, you might want to uh, uh, take, take we're a We're trying look. to, we're tr- can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the- it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but... Uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's I'm here live. That's not I'm not a cat. I don't laugh a lot at much, right? Like I watch like murder mysteries and that kind of stuff. So I'm not watching comedy. I tell you what, that damn lawyer cat, it's still it is the funniest thing. Why was it so funny to you? Because I could just imagine, right? Like a judge and then the guy, the, the look on the guy's face is a cat. And, and then he's like, well, I'm a live judge. And yes, I know you're not a cat. And we're ready to go forward. I was like, man, you got to give that guy some props. You really do. And I think America needed that joy. Oh, I did. 
I, and I will use it every single day. Because it is that good. <laughs> it definitely is. Uh, so I wanted to bring that up. And then I wanted to bring up something that President Biden has been doing with local businesses with COVID-19 relief. And he's been talking to restaurateurs. And I just think this is so spectacular. I, and I know it's a PR move and all of that. But still, by taking a local business and he actually spotlighted a local business in your district. I love me some nonstop. <laughs> Yes. I am not going to lie. It is it is very, very good. So Neil and Samir, they started that business a couple of years ago. I actually interviewed them for Atlanta Eats Radio. They had contacted me when they first opened and they were just so aggressive about getting the word out about their business. And then President Biden did a little interview with them about how they pivoted. Hello, Neil. Samir. Mr. President. Nonstop, huh? Tell me about how you got started. Almost 10 years ago, my brother and I started an Indian restaurant concept. We wanted to bring our mother's cooking to the world, but when COVID hit, we had to completely adapt. We learned new strategies to handle our business, meeting our community with food at their doors while balancing our lives at home. But as small business owners during the pandemic, every day is an open question. When President Biden found out about our situation, he reached out. So how are you guys doing? It's been pretty rough, hasn't it, lately? Uh, our business has been down 75% almost overnight. Roughly how many employees you have, Neil? Well, pre-COVID, we had about 20 to 25 employees. Right now, although we haven't laid a single person off, we've offered work to anybody who wants to continue working. We're down to about in the 10 to 15 employee range. What is the greatest need you have now for your restaurants to be able to survive? Well, the greatest need is for everybody to be vaccinated because if people aren't out shopping, the economy grinds to a halt. Well, you got it exactly right. You understand it well. The fact is that small businesses are things that hold communities together and they provide half the workforce in America. And it was just exciting to see them. And it's a great restaurant. No, I mean, look, it's, it's a great story. And what I love about what Biden's doing and Jill Biden, too, is focusing on these small businesses or with respect to the first lady, focusing on local businesses. You know, whenever she gets cookies or whatever, they take a, a picture and she makes sure that she kind of she, she kind of highlights them on social media. It's really, it's a small thing, but it's such a big thing for these small businesses. And it's really incredible. Let me tell you what, when they put those hearts on the White House lawn and the dogs were running around, I, I just, the optics of these things are just, it's its like, I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> They're not yelling at people. Well, and they, they clearly love each other too, which is, which is really it's nice. nice. Yeah, it it's is nice. It's nice. Nice and boring. And I like it. <laughs> Me too. All right. Well, there's been a lot to unpack there. We're going to come back again. Our podcast is edited by Christina Laringer. Our music is courtesy of Terminus Records. You can always reach out to her at voterpodcast at gmail.com. Follow at Senator Jen at Merritt Davis. Any questions you might have. And in the coming weeks, you know, Jen's going to have a lot to say about a lot of different things. So I think you will too. I think so too. I think so, too. Listen, nobody loves talking about me more than me. <laughs> nobody loves talking about 
Senator Jen Jordan, more than me, actually. Happy <laughs> Valentine's Day, Mayor. <laughs> Happy belated Valentine's Day. Peace and love. And we'll talk to you next time. 